Good morning. Sitting here with ourselves, you can have quite different flavors. Sitting in the Buddha mind, the universal dharma is obvious, uh, maybe one flavor, and sitting here, stewing in our personal history, maybe another flavor. And uh, it may take some time to disentangle the relationship between the personal in my experience and the transpersonal in my experience or the universal in my experience. Um, it seems to not be easy to hit it off in the right way when we practice. My own story is a story in which I have found the necessity to disentangle from personal history for many years. Many years studiously emphasizing transpersonal and universal aspects of my experience. Not my suffering, but suffering. Not my anger, but anger. Not my pain, but pain. And to learn to acknowledge within what I have personalized and identified with in exquisitely selfish terms, um, to identify this as, in large chunks as universal. But there is a time, there is a place for the personal. There is something in the experience I undergo right now that is deeply personal. Not because it belongs to me, not because I can really own it or control it, but in respect to the, specific, the specificity of history, the particularness of my brand of virtues and hang-ups, my particular brand of um, skills and deficiencies, my temperament, my psychological history, there is a certain specificity to the way I experience the world and myself and the universe right now. And these need to be, these two aspects, they need to be in some way understood. They can probably never truly be reconciled my notion of a universal truth uh, will always be happening in very specific personal terms. I cannot understand the universal other than from an embodied, personalized point of view. Disincarnation, it's a man, West European, 60s, and 70s conditioning middle class background you know there's a specificity to that and that colors my outlook 
even of the notion of universal aspects of experience. This has to be understood, this relationship. Sometimes people play one against the other. They say there is no there's no religion out there. There's nothing beyond your personal needs and your personal skills and your personal development. Insisting on a strictly developmentally psychological point of view. There's great validity to that. There are no spiritual shortcuts through psychological terrain. I am very firmly convinced of this, I, simply because I've tried to take those shortcuts. Yet there is a profoundly universal aspect to most of my life. On the other hand, I cannot outdo my personal, developmentally necessary steps by simply referring to the fact that dukkha is universal, that anicca is universal, that anatata is universal. This doesn't necessarily get me out of my neuroses or my traumas or my highly specific hang-ups. So there has to be a relationship between an acknowledgement of a personal truth, truth of my specific history, my specific gifts, also maybe my specific calling, and there has to be an acknowledgement of a profoundly universal and transpersonal aspect of my experience. It can be very invalidating to just be told, oh, it's all suffering, don't bother. Yeah. If you understood impersonality, you wouldn't even make such a fuss about what hurts you right now. You know, this is it's going to be very callous and psychologically not very savvy to meet somebody who is in an extreme state of suffering or disturbed or dismayed by some uh, grave event in his or her life to simply tell them, well, don't bother, it's all anicca, anicca, anicca. Just doesn't belong to you anyway, so what's the fuss all about? This isn't um, helping them. The Buddha didn't do that. Kisa Gotami came to him with her dead child. He didn't say, ah, it's all, it's all impermanent anyway, just get over it. No. He sent her, he took her serious. He sent her going round to the village, have her ask for mustard seed, so that she was in the belief he would find a medicine for her dead child. He said, oh, look for mustard seeds, but make sure it's coming from a house where nobody has died in. So she said, oh, mustard seed, that's easy. Well, he's going to fix my baby again. Goes round and asks for mustard seed. And people are happy to give her mustard seeds. But when she asks, oh, but uh, somebody died in this house, people inevitably tell her, oh, yes, many people have died in this house. And by the evening she returns without mustard seed, but with the understanding that the experience of death, which is dramatic and disturbing in her own life because her child 
had just died, is not just a personal tragedy, but it is also a universal tragedy. It is the occurrence that has happened in every house. Now this is compassionate because the Buddha realized she doesn't need conceptual knowledge, the information that all conditioned things are impermanent. She needs the time to digest that experience. She needs the time to let that actually percolate in into the personal layers of her experience. And for that she needed some more time and some exposure to the experience of other people. She needed contextualizing. So this seems to me a skillful way in which the personal and the transpersonal can be, if not reconciled, then mutually acknowledged. Sometimes these morning reflections are uh, um, trying to focus them all on an aspect of awareness or of mindfulness or of attention these last couple of weeks. Sometimes the issue is, is not with our willingness to acknowledge either the personal or the transpersonal. Sometimes the challenge seems to be to actually reframe the mesh of our capacity to be aware of something. Sometimes our awareness is so focused on a particular type of experience that it is difficult to reframe it or recalibrate it for other types of experience. This may sound abstract, but think of a moment. If our mindfulness is focused on cognitive processes, thought, image, concept, discursive thinking. If being mindful is being mindful of what we think, then our mindfulness generally adapts to the nature of the object it's preoccupied with, namely thought in this example. Now thought has quite different features than say a body sensation. Thought is usually well contoured, it is usually reasonably fast, it's kind of flitting, it multiplies easily, uh, often it makes discernible statements. Sometimes my name is mentioned and I'm particularly aware of what it thinks. Yeah. So I am not just learning to be aware of something, I am also in my awareness subtly calibrating this awareness to the phenomena of conceptual stuff, fast moving, multiplying, well contoured, uh, often crisp in statement. Um, if I try to use that same awareness to spend it on, say, body sensation, then my first problem is that body sensations don't move fast. Most of them don't move fast. Most of them are not really crisp, not compared with thought. They kind of meander they're amorphous, they're diffuse, they're not very distinct, most of them. So I need to actually recalibrate my awareness to a whole new game. It's not just that I go and look for in a different place in my experience. Actually, the thing it has to take into account has a totally different nature. So usually, 
my awareness needs to slow down, become more tolerant of soft edges, of hazy corners, of diffuse manifestation. If I stay with my mindfulness calibrated to thought, then all I get is impatience at that moment. It just never gets clear very much, this body sensation stuff. It's just so fuzzy. Or it's painful, yeah. But most of the time, most people are not in acute pain. So I need to actually learn to widen. I need to learn to recalibrate my awareness to things that do not move like thoughts, that do not flit around, that do not clearly say what they want or what they don't want. Yeah? That do not have such easily attributable meaning like a thought has. What is the meaning of that slight warmth in my upper belly? Yeah? It doesn't work like that. So body awareness, it is as if the mesh of my awareness has to be of a different grade. One of the teachings, I mentioned the three gates of liberation a few days ago, the three Vimokha Mukha, or Vimokha Dvara, the gates of liberation. And this is an interesting teaching because it speaks of gates in which we understand deathless, in which we approach Nibbana. Not just as a realization, but actually as a practice. And one concept in there is the concept of signlessness, of animita. And that signlessness of experience is a fascinating, not easily understood notion. The signlessness is a direct consequence of change, of impermanence, of anicchata. Because things change and because the subject that apprehends these things also changes, you have two changing basic processes. One changing process, subjective, often identified with the experiencer, and the other aspect of that change is the objective, which is the, th- the stuff of experience. Now these two processes intermingle, and in their intermingling they lose their signs. The word for sign is a complex notion called nimitta, which many of you well know as meditation nimittas, which if we are to follow the commentaries are only visual. If you are to follow actual experience, then we have nimitas in all of our senses. We have smell nimitas and taste nimitas and sound nimitas. For some unfortunate reason, the teaching on nimitta in the Visuddhimaka has been reduced to visual nimitta. But in fact, every lasting occurrence in one of our sense spheres that is stable enough for our awareness to settle on as a nimitta. So the term nimitta has many other meanings. One of them is simply a sign, something the attention of the mind latches onto. I said yesterday about the tendency of the mind to reify, to objectify its experience out of a fluid stream of experiences that come in through our senses, we latch onto individual signs, we grasp them, 
and we elevate them out of that stream and we make something of them, we create them. This is the bit I'm interested in. Oop, gone. Yeah. So we are repeatedly encouraged in the teachings many, many times. It, is, it says one way to reconcile with impermanence is to deeply um, realize the mind's trait to grasp the sign and the nimitta and the secondary characteristic, the anuvyanjana. And the practitioner is encouraged not to do so. The practitioner is encouraged to not grasp onto the signs and the secondary signs of, its, of his or her experience. Now what are these signs? These signs are, on the simplest level, easy concept. Concept like this is a man, this is a woman. This is wood, this is stone. This is nice, and this is not nice. So we are encouraged to open our awareness and unclutch from that grasping onto signs. The key ingredient in this, which is in the teaching of the Three Gates of Liberation, the key ingredient to do that with things of changeable nature is determination. The word for this is adhimokha, with determination, equipped. We are capable of practicing with impermanence in a way that we realize the signless nature of experience. We get in touch with the fluid process nature underneath the habitual tendency of the mind to create marker stones or signs or latch onto specific characteristics we have charged with meaning in our lives. This is dangerous. This is the bit I like. She's nice. So releasing the signs is a practice we are encouraged to do. When we are taught that we should release the sign and release the secondary characteristic, release it back into the stream of processed nature of our, of our experience. Not fixing on, not latching on to the things we recognize in terms of perception. So what does that demand from our quality of awareness and attention? If that attention by habit um, and by dint of conditioning keeps going for the bits it recognizes and wants to hang itself onto them, yeah, claw itself into experience by way of signs, fixing attention on signs. We have to release, noting and releasing, noting and releasing. Change in some way is the easiest of the three lakanas. It is the most apparent. Nobody would deny it. A 
it doesn't take any great realization to meet change in our experience. The two other lakanas are a little more complicated. The things are more painful than they are giving us pleasure is already some degree of uh, profounder experience. That there is an inherent type of dukkha in all experience, even the most subtle one, is not immediately apparent. It takes some considerable sobriety and investigation to actually find out that lying in bed when it's warm and cozy and nice is also to some degree dukkha. Although the dukkha is not a physical pain, it is the dukkha that this situation ends or that it um, that I can't really stay in bed without uh, undergoing some considerable pains when I, when I try to do that. It's not immediately apparent. The immediate apparent experience is nice, comfy, cozy. That this is connected with pain takes some investigation. The selflessness aspect is even more complicated. It's actually already a realization. Yeah? To understand anatta, already some degree of realization is needed. So try to consider what is the conditioning of your awareness. I've spoken to many of you. And it's obvious to me that some of your awareness is focused on very particular aspects of your experience. Some of you are focused on pain, even the non-arising of pain. Now, even if pain doesn't arise, you're still waiting in front of the mouse hole, whether the mouse comes out. Even if the mouse doesn't come out, you're still fixated on that mouse hole. So there may be other things in that experience than the mouse hole out of which the pain comes. So let us learn to acknowledge the patterning, even in our awareness, we anticipate or we apprehend, even if things do not arise, we keep vigilantly and suspiciously maybe wait in a particular corner while there may be quite a few valid other corners in our experience which could be uh, investigated. So let us acknowledge our own, our favorite corners for awareness, for attention, for mindfulness, and see whether we can widen that. Is there something that speaks of this signlessness? Do we actually recognize when things are wishless when we are without desire? Do we actually sense the subtle contentment in there or are we just bored? Quite possible that we're just bored. If you're focused on problems and no problems arise, you may not feel content, you may simply feel bored. You may just wait for your next emergency call. How would I apprehend emptiness if my mind is not 
wide and spacious enough to see beside and around the things the emptiness that surrounds them. If my habit of perception and of attention is such that I only ever see things, how would I acknowledge emptiness as the gap between sound, as the gap between things, as the space between the bits my attention keeps focusing on? It takes some active work. Each something is supported by the nothing that surrounds it. John Cage. Please practice well today.